Hello and welcome back to Counterintuitive, a governance podcast. I'm your host, Dr Paul Sagar, a lecturer in the Department of Political Economy here at King's College London. And this podcast is made in association with the Centre for the Study of Governance and Society at King's College London. Each week on this podcast, I invite a speaker to come and defend an idea that is to some degree counterintuitive. I play the role of devil's advocate or sceptical inquirer in order to see where the ideas will take us. Of course, whether you agree with me or my speakers is, in the final instance, entirely up to you. Today I'm speaking to Dr. Cliff Mark. Cliff holds degrees from McGill and Oxford Universities and took his PhD in political theory from Cambridge. He's written on a wide array of topics for both academic and general audiences, ranging from specialist peer-reviewed journals to magazines like The Atlantic and Aeon. Most recently, however, he's the host of an excellent new philosophy podcast called Good in Theory, the first season of which just came out at the time of recording. And by the time you hear this podcast, there may be more seasons out, so do check that out. Again, it's called Good in Theory, and you can get it from all the usual places you get your podcasts. Cliff, welcome to Counterintuitive. Thank you. Thank you, Paul. Uh, Dr. Mark, that is a a name I haven't heard in some years. (laughs) (laughs) Well, as listeners hopefully know by now, the idea behind this podcast series is to explore ideas that are in some way unobvious, paradoxical, surprising. And Cliff, yours may be one of the most unexpected ideas of all that we examine here. Because you want to tell us that we can learn something important about contemporary identity politics from some of the conflicts and issues surrounding the history of dueling. That's, uh, that's exactly right. And well, uh, I think the first t- thing that we might learn, I don't usually use the word identity politics that much because what I'm going to tell you is that I don't think identity politics, for the most part, is about identity any more than dueling was really about lying or cowardice. But yeah. Okay, awesome. Well, why, why don't you like help us out to see where you want us to get to by telling us something about dueling? Because I, I imagine most people have an idea, vague idea in their head, you know, it's a, a couple of guys, one insults the other, and then it, you know, it's either pistols at dawn or sabers. And, and you know, and it's all something to do with honor. But, but I would imagine most people listening to this podcast don't really know much about how the practice actually worked historically. So why don't, why don't we start there? Great. Yeah. So there's a few things you put in there that were exactly right. And I want to really highlight one is honor and another is insult. And so I'm gonna get to both of those. But first, if you have in your head an idea about a duel as a contest where people are just showing off, demonstrating how good they are with a sword or a pistol, or trying to win the heart of a young woman, just forget about that for the time being. Let's talk about honor and insult. So the first concept is honor. For a long time, honor was a very important social concept. And I don't mean just as a quality of character, meaning you're an honest, honorable man. It's a social status. You have to be a certain level in society, occupy a certain position to be considered to have honor. Sometimes this means just the nobility. Later, it can include all sorts of people, bourgeois people, the gentry, etc. Now, what honor means, essentially, is that you are owed a level of respect. You have the status. If you're honorable, I'm honorable. That means we have to treat each other on some level as equals. Think of it kind of as analogous to dignity. Now, everyone who's honorable, even though there's inequalities there, right? You might have a big fancy duke, you might have just a common gentry. You're supposed to treat each other as equals, but sometimes that goes wrong. Sometimes someone says something that's a bit off, they look at people the wrong way, they seduce someone's sister, 
that kind of thing. And that would be an insult, right? So what an insult is, is anything, and really anything could set off this kind of thing. Anything that implies that the other person is not an equal. And that is what starts a duel. That's what starts every one of these quarrels. And so we're both honorable. You talk to me like, I don't know, you would talk to one of your undergraduate students. I think that's not the proper amount of respect. Um, I take offense. And in dueling culture, taking offense is actually just like a euphemism for issuing a challenge to a duel. I come up and I say, hey, you can't talk to me like that. I'm your equal, so you better do something about it. And usually you could apologize and that would be it. If you don't, or if I don't accept your apology, then we go on to arranging pistols or sabers at dawn, uh, et cetera. Okay, awesome. So what happens then if I come along to you and say, you've spoken to me in a way that doesn't respect you know, my status, and you think, yeah, that's what you deserved. So, so the, is there a question here about who gets to call out who in this honor culture? Right, exactly. So this is a really interesting thing that I thought is, you know, analogous with today, but we'll get to that. It's that insults don't really travel across class barriers. If I'm honorable and you're not honorable because I don't know, you're like Dick Van Dyke chimney sweep, whatever you have. Um, whatever you say to me, I'm not going to take offense to it because like what you say doesn't matter. Your respect and your opinion doesn't matter to me. You're below me. And similarly, I'll speak to you however I want. And if you get angry about it or upset, I can ignore that. But if you're my equal and I say something that offends you and you come up to me and say, you've insulted me, I want satisfaction. I can't easily ignore you. If I try to ignore you, I can be dishonored because I'll look like a coward for not you know, giving you the respect of listening to your complaint. Um, but if I ignore your offense and get away with it, that just reinforces it. That just like puts you back down in your place. Uh, so, yeah. so would the example here be one that I know you've drawn in your work of uh, the famous 18th century philosopher Voltaire, who, who notoriously <laughs> wanted to claim satisfaction from a member of the aristocracy who insulted him. And, and I, I think, uh, as, you, as you wrote in your work, the response was instead of satisfying him with a duel, this aristocrat sent out his lackeys and had Voltaire beaten with sticks, which kind of was to, was to very much make the point, you're not my equal, so you don't get to call me out in a duel. Right. Like, so now I think of Voltaire, at least in my mind, as one of the great arrogant assholes of uh, Western culture, right? So to see him get his comeuppance, I find kind of funny. And people look to Voltaire, they're always, oh, you know, this, this great champion of free speech and the Enlightenment, an enemy of the aristocracy, blah, 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 blah. He's like the voice of modernity. But actually, he is there challenging this guy over and over to a duel because he feels he's been insulted. And then what happens is, so the Duke of Rohan, or the, uh, you know, the Chevalier de Rohan, he insults Voltaire once, and then Voltaire starts challenging him, and then he, yeah, he has them beaten. He sends his lackeys around to ring the doorbell while Voltaire is at a dinner party. These servants call out Voltaire, and then they just drag him out in the street and beat him with sticks, while the Knight of Rohan is sitting in his carriage saying, well, try not to hit the head, something good still might come out of there. <laughs> so in a way, um, this, is, yeah, this is a fantastic uh, exemplification of Vol uh, Voltaire is not permitted the status of issuing or, or being having his challenge recognized. And so it, what we've got here is a sense that there's very much, like you said a minute ago, a class division. 
But what changed then? Because one thing that we know is that dueling culture didn't stay static. It went through phases and became wider. More and more people were um, allowed to partake in it until it eventually, of course, disappeared. We don't fight anymore in the streets, at least we're not supposed to. We certainly don't issue duels. So, so how did it get from Voltaire being beaten with sticks because he was you know, below the status required to issue a dueling challenge through to some situation in the 19th century where you have so many people dying in duels that Napoleon has to try and outlaw dueling because he's losing too many officers um, <laughs> and, and, and it's threatening the integrity of the French military. Right. Well, there, is, there has been all these efforts to uh, eliminate dueling from the beginning of its history, which is in the 15th, 16th century. But the Voltaire story is kind of interesting because this is an inflection point, right? At this point, Voltaire doesn't have the status to challenge Rohan. And his friends tell him so. And Rohan doesn't get in any trouble at all for just treating Voltaire however he wants. But he wouldn't get away with that, say, 100, 150 years later. Because as the medieval hierarchies of the aristocracy kind of disintegrated and society became more equalized, the middle class was rising, they joined officer corps, they started going to universities, that meant that there was a wider pool of people who were considered to have honor. So this status that was formerly just restrained to the aristocracy gradually spread throughout society. Not throughout all of society, but it became wider. And as it became wider, new people thought of themselves as having honor. And they started demanding to be treated as though they had honor. And that's why everyone started fighting duels. It became much more widespread over the next couple of hundred years from, from that point. Great. So I think that's given us a really good sense of, of the, hist the basic history of dueling and the, the social dynamics of it. How on earth that can that teach us anything about contemporary conflicts over identity politics, if we'll use that label, at least for today? All right. Well, before I get right to that, I just want to say one more thing about mm. what happens with the actual... Oh, sure, sure. I yeah. just want to say out clearly the dialectic of what's happening. So imagine we have equal respect. You violate it, that's an insult. When you take offense, that's trying to respond to the insult. You're saying, no, no, I actually am your equal, whatever. And when you duel, when you actually fight, there's a kind of magic that happens, which is that before the insult casts someone's honor and doubt, then the challenge uh, casts the other person's honor and doubt. When you duel, because you would only ever duel with an equal, right? Rohan wouldn't duel with Voltaire. You would only ever duel with an equal that just by fighting, you're recognizing each other's equality. So when you're done fighting, usually nobody dies, maybe there's some minor injuries. You might not wind up best friends, although people often did, but the insult was erased and the beef is squashed, as we would say now. <laughs> um, so what can this tell us about identity politics? Well, as you know, as long as at least I can remember, there have been these recurring uh, fights in media about these people, you know, they're taking offense to everything. They're a bunch of crybabies, whining snowflakes, et cetera, et cetera. There's political correctness. Now we talk about cancel culture. The idea is there are people taking offense to stuff. And on the one side, people are saying, well, yeah, we'll stop saying racist things, stop saying sexist things. This is actually really bad. Um, and we, don't want to be talked to like that. Great. And the other side, well, you're being too sensitive. You can't take a joke. You can't say anything anymore. And there's this, there's this fight. And I, I was thinking that, so how do you defend taking offense? Because I'm quite sympathetic to it. I don't 
think that you should have to sit down and take being spoken down to because you're a woman or of a minority or any reason at all, really. Um, but how do you justify telling someone off? And the most common justification I hear is that racist speech, sexist speech, offensive speech in general is wrong because it harms you, right? So this is an idea of offense as harm. So if you look at, there's books on critical race theory, like uh, Mary Matsuda, Words That Wound. Um, and that is exactly the metaphor people are going for. There are words, they wound, they hurt people, they cause psychological damage, they make people not want to go outside because they might hear something offensive. They reinforce uh, social hierarchies, et cetera, et cetera. And so I think that that may be true in a lot of cases, but that cannot account for a lot of the stuff that we actually see people in the media fighting over. Because if your justification for being mad about, I don't know, uh, white people's dreadlocks or Robin Thicke's blurred lines or something like this is that you're being traumatized and uh, it's really hurting you. Not a lot of people are going to relate to that. You want some other kind of justification. Um, so that's how I pull the whole theory about honor and dueling into identity politics. I think offensive speech is about insult and not about harm. Okay, so just talk us through that a little bit more in detail then. So what is it exactly that you think um, makes a lot of the complaints in this area uh, more, more understandable if we understand them as complaints about insults? Presumably then it's about status. What you're saying here is the real issue that people have here is not that they're being harmed by this speech. So sometimes they might be. There are, there are certain kinds of words that wound. But the, the, the pervasive problem, the more paradigmatic, if you like, problem is that these kinds of words are denying people a certain kind of status. Is that, is that what you're saying? Here? Yes, that's exactly what I'm saying. And I think one way to illustrate this, right, is if you say something that is kind of racist to me, it might be, all right, and I'm deciding whether to take offense to it, or I'm asking my friends whether you're wrong to do that, right? The operative question that I'm asking myself when I'm deciding whether to tell you off isn't, well, how do I feel? Are my feelings hurt? Um, am I sad, distressed, et cetera? No, I'm asking, is what Paul said racist, right? It's about what you said, and the, what would make it racist is that you are constructing me as lesser than based on my race. It's a matter of an expression of my status, not uh, how you affect me psychologically. So if that's our process of thinking, then creating these uh, theories about what kind of harm you might cause, cause me, that might be important in a different way, but that's not triggering what makes me mad. Okay. Would you say, therefore, that the recent, we could debate how recent, upsurge in identity politics is better explained then on your model because i take it you want to say there's maybe an analogy here between the way that dueling culture became more extensive as more people were granted the status of being able to claim mm -hmm. equality with a wider set of people that there's something similar has gone on here with the relatively recent rise in people affirming this equality of status through identity right i think i think that's i think that's right so one of, the common, one of the common critiques of people who take offense or political correctness or whatever you want to call it is that, hey, 
listen, we understand that back during Jim Crow and back in the bad old days of sexism, um, that you had a lot to complain about. But now everyone has equal rights. There are no racist or sexist laws. There is official equality. So maybe you should stop complaining. And there's a philosopher, Claudia Card, and she makes just this argument, right? She says, well, look, there, there is a case to be made that racist speech, offensive speech can actually harm people, but it only harms you when it's backed up by being enforced by the state. Racist insults only really work during Jim Crow is basically what she's saying. Whereas for her, there were very sexist library rules in the college that she went to. Girls weren't allowed to use the boys' library, but boys were allowed to use the girls' library, whatever. And she says, look, I, I had a lot of privilege. I was getting a university education, and I just don't think that this is something to be that upset about. And to my mind, if you try to institute that policy today in any university, right, <laughs> people are going to be upset, and I think, I think they would be justified, right? This is, there's no way you're, you're going to get away with that. And so... The question is, why is that? Why are we upset at that? Why, why, if women now have equal rights, as Claudia Card said, why don't they have nothing to complain about? Why are they fussing over small things? Well, I think what the honor analogy shows is that equal rights, a basic official equality, isn't something that like eliminates offense or insult. That's actually a precondition for it. Because we have to be equals in some sense for me to take offense to what you say, just like Rohan and Voltaire. And we have to be equals in some way for me to take your offense seriously. So for this whole, I'm offended, and now I feel like I have to apologize, for that whole dialectic to get off the ground, there has to be some underlying idea that we're equal. And so you're asking, why do we have all this upsurge in offense in recent times after we've had all these great civil rights movements and movements for equality, and now people are still complaining? Well, those movements establish the equality that gives us the basis for complaint. Yeah, so that makes a lot of sense to me intuitively. That it's precisely because gains have been made that people now feel that they can claim the status. You could imagine, say, in the 1970s, 1980s, a lot of women, a lot of people of color wouldn't dare to make these claims because they would feel too insecure in affirming their status of equality. They wouldn't want to rock the boat. That in some way it's a, it's a sign of progress that people feel that they can make these claims on others. Do you think that means that we may in fact see the end of some of the more heated controversies um, in the way that dueling eventually died out? Will, once people feel affirmed in their status, assuming we don't catastrophically slide backwards into worse forms of social organization that is. Is it likely that, that this may go the way of dueling or is that too difficult to say? Well, I, I would say that, you know, it only took us 500 years to work through dueling. So maybe on that <laughs> time scale, <laughs> we, we may say the same thing. Um, I think that as long as the norm of equal respect is important to us, as long as that idea of equal status there is always going to be something happening with regards to insult and retribution. And I think, I think retributive justice is restorative justice. So I think that this whole idea of insult and demanding respect, this is, this is a dialectic that helps construct categories of equal respect. I don't think that we really could have respect for each other if this wasn't always a possibility. So I never think it'll be gone completely, but I do think 
that as people become more secure in their status, they might be less inclined to make this kind of fuss. Is it a problem for your thesis, though, that a lot of the proponents of what is often referred to as woke politics, it's usually an insult now, um, would push back and say that, no, it's, 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 it is about harm. So one, one sort of question mark I have here is your, your analysis sounds very plausible to me, except I wonder how many people who are pushing these demands would, would, would recognize it as a description of what they themselves feel and think. Because I agree that your model fits the, gives me a certain plausibility of an empirical observation, except for the fact that most of these claims are couched in the language of harm. Well, I mean, part of making a new theory, right, is to give people new theoretical options to articulate what, what they are already feeling. So is it a problem for my case? I don't think inherently so. First, I want to say that I do think that the harm, the harm argument is true in some cases, and it's true to a certain extent. I just don't think it can account for the range of things that we want to talk about when we talk about offensive speech and taking offense. And the way I would frame it, offering my theory, is not, hey, I'm going to tell you why you're really mad, because that's enormously condescending. Um, what I would say is, look, if, if you ever wanted to tell someone off, if you were ever offended by someone, but you didn't want to construct yourself as having been harmed and damaged by it and being crying out for help, but instead you felt that by taking offense, you were asserting your own self-respect, I think that this is the understanding of offense taking that makes the most sense. So you take someone like Bernard Boxhill, right? And he wrote an article called Self-Respect and Protest. And this was, at least for me, quite an influential article. And what he's saying is so many political protests have no hope of improving your situation, but people do it anyway. And why? And if they were just crying out for help, if they were just crying out in pain, then that just kind of makes them look bad like they were doing victim politics. But you take someone like Frederick Douglass, he's saying he might not even have hope of changing everything by his protest, but it's an assertion of self-respect. And so the reason I thought this up is because when I see people taking offense and complaining and fighting these fights that they, you know, say for justice, I see strength and indignation and kind of righteous anger. And to me, that's a very different attitude than hurt victimization, which I think it's a mistake to try and fit everything into that image because that's precisely what their enemies are playing off of by calling them snowflakes and crybabes and so on. So yeah, you don't want to be cared, compared to dualists because everyone thinks they're macho jerks. But on the other hand, they did have a lot of self-respect. <laughs> and a lot of people wanted to be dualists, right? That's the whole story of more and more people wanting in on this culture. So there's something interesting there. You, you mentioned just a second ago the, uh, the, the so-called snowflake critique. So I wonder, what do you think your analysis adds or maybe improves upon with regards to, say, someone like Jonathan Haidt, who in his book, uh, The Coddling of the American Mind, suggests that what's going on here is the, the outplay of parenting practices, particularly in the wake of 9-11, and a culture of fear amongst parents who haven't let their children be exposed to harm and to risk and to failure, and have created a generation of, of, of young people who 
can't take disagreement. And I take it that your thesis is that that, that can't be the whole story if, if it's the story at all. I don't think that's the whole story. I don't even think that is a major part of the story. I think you can probably find some spoiled children. All right. And where, where, where's John Haidt? Is he like, is he at NYU or? I, I'm not sure where he's at at the moment. He may be at NYU at the moment. I mean, you're in a very elite university. You're going to find a few spoiled kids. That much, I can't deny. But I just don't see that. I mean, I spent a fair time in, in university and I did not see this group of an entire spoiled generation who can't take arguing or conflict. I think that this is just a failure on people like Height's part to recognize the genuine sources of grievance um, that people often rightly have. And also, I think that this whole, there's kind of this right-wing media industry just based around getting mad at the kids these days and what are they taking offense to. So I do think that actually this whole thing about you can't say anything more, everyone's a snowflake, I think it's overblown. That's not in my experience how it actually is in universities. And so the thesis that there's an entire generation of people who are just these kind of psychological uh, glass, glass children is, is not convincing, convincing for me. Cheers. On that area, I wonder if one of the things your analysis can potentially help us understand is why so much recent so-called identity politics is particularly uninterested in the question of intentionality. So if we go back to your dueling analogy, I presume that it didn't always matter if one person disrespected another intentionally. Right? That if, if I fail to give you the proper accord and respect um, in, a, in a social setting and you issued me with a challenge, the fact that I hadn't done it intentionally may not have been all that decisive. The fact that I'd done it would be more important. And I wonder if that, that's another similarity, because one thing that does recur with a lot of the identity polit politics um, claims is that, well, it doesn't matter if somebody intended to be racist. It doesn't matter if somebody intended to be sexist. What matters is that they did the thing. Um, and I again wonder, does that make more sense on your model of, but it, by doing that, they disrespected the status of the other person. And the fact that they didn't intend to is kind of neither here nor there. Well, in dueling culture, intention could be very important. Actually, it was important. So if you do something that's kind of insulting and I say, hey, Paul, that was out of line. And you say, that's not at all what I meant. I fully respect you as an equal. I meant something else. Usually, I can let that go, right? It's sort of up to me. I don't have to. Sometimes I can say, well, look, you said what you said and now I want satisfaction, right? Um, and that's sort of my option. But what's interesting to look at here is what the person who's taking offense is doing and achieving by taking offense, right? What I'm doing is kind of extorting a display of respect from you. Because if you do fight me, if we do duel, then you, by fighting me, recognize me as an equal, and everyone sees that, right? So let's say I'm kind of insecure in my status. I think that people don't respect me. I might go around and look for an insult just so I can force this display of respect that will then establish me as an equal. And there is actually a really interesting history of this in dueling. So whenever a class of people was rising or falling, they tended to get really punctilious about their honor. So 
when bourgeois men entered universities and entered sort of the military establishments to become officers in various European countries, they always got a reputation for being really, really fussy about honor and challenging people to more duels. And in the early 20th century, in the late 19th century, there was also the phenomenon, especially in France, um, of Jewish duelists, of ch people, Jewish guys, challenging anti-Semites just to force them to display, do a display of respect. So you have people writing these anti-Semitic tracts, they get challenged to all sorts of duels by Jewish men, and so they either sit there and take the insults, in which case they look like punks, or they duel them, in which case they have acknowledged the Jewish men that they're dueling as their equals. And this is explicitly formulated. This isn't just me making it up. There are in the diaries of Jewish duelists saying, this is what I'm doing. I'm forcing them to respect me. Um, so I think that in many cases, that function is still being performed today. Like we might want to say, look, I'm going to take offense to this and you're going to say, I'm sorry, that's how I didn't mean it. And now we've already achieved something because you've recognized that my offense taking is legitimate. And you can't talk to me that way. Yeah. There, there is a case to be answered. A final thing that I'm wondering here is, again, readers, uh, listeners can probably tell that I'm quite persuaded by the argument in various ways, is if it also helps us to explain something that was remarked in, in particular, the wake of the 2016 American election, which is that white people behaved as an ethnic group, right? that they voted you know, in their perceived white identity interest. And if, is there a way of telling the story on your terms, which is that, well, when the group that has previously had most of the status suddenly feels like it might have to share that status, it's not surprising if it reacts in a way to lock down its privilege. Well, yes, I don't, I don't think that's surprising at all. Uh, I think that every, every group as far back as you can look when, when they're being asked to share their status don't usually share it easily. So I'm not sure what the question is. Well, well I suppose it's not a question. <laughs> Maybe it's just more confirmation of your thesis. Um, Cliff, that was fantastically illuminating. Um, thanks so much for, for taking the time. Hey, it's my great pleasure. Thanks for having me on. Cheers. Thank you, Cliff. Bye.